Well, this morning we're beginning a new series looking at the book of Hebrews. And we need to acknowledge right from the outset, when we come to this book, there's actually a lot we don't know about this letter. We don't know who wrote it. It almost certainly wasn't the Apostle Paul, but beyond that, we just can't be sure who wrote it. Various theories are suggested. It could have been Barnabas, Paul's companion. It could have been a man called Apollos or Priscilla and Aquila. We just don't know who wrote it. And we don't know which early group of Christians it was written to. We don't know much about the original readers of this letter. Some people think they were maybe in a house church in Rome um, and believers largely from a Jewish background. But again, we can't be sure. But what we can be certain of from even the briefest reading of this letter is that Hebrews is a letter written to a group of discouraged and disillusioned believers. A group of early Christians who appear to be close to giving up and walking away from Jesus. Now before last Wednesday, um, I was wondering whether it would be my job this morning to encourage discouraged and disillusioned England football fans. But you did make it through, um, so that's good news. If England do lose later on against Germany, do come to me. Um, And I will comfort you. As a Northern Ireland football fan, I know a great deal about disillusionment (laughs) with your national team. But but as with any bit of the Bible, um, when we look at it as Christians, it's worth asking the question, what has the message of Hebrews got to do with me? If this letter is written to discouraged and disillusioned believers, then what relevance does that have for us today? Well, in a gathering of this size, I'm pretty confident there'll be some of us here who don't need to work hard at seeing the relevance of Hebrews. So perhaps this morning you feel discouraged, disillusioned with the Christian life. And maybe you, this morning, feel discouraged, disillusioned. And in that sense, this message feels very relevant to you. Perhaps everything feels like a struggle right now. Perhaps you find yourself asking, is this really what I signed up for when I began to follow Jesus? Is God really keeping his end of the bargain in helping me live for him? Why does everything have to be so hard, you may be asking? And if that is how you're feeling this morning, then you're in a very similar position to this group of early Christians. So the message of Hebrews is a message for you. But I want to suggest this morning, it's also a message for all of us, both Christians who are here this morning, and those who actually aren't yet Christians. Both those who feel discouraged in life, and those who actually are pretty happy with the way things are right now. Again, I hope that alongside those of us who feel discouraged this morning, there are many of us who don't. But both this letter and the rest of the Bible is clear. Every single Christian will face times of discouragement and disillusionment as they live for Jesus. Every single believer will experience moments when it feels like it would just be a whole lot easier if we gave up following Jesus and went back to the world and the life it offers us. So if you don't count yourself as a discouraged believer this morning, well, first of all, thank God for that. But also, listen to the message of this book as a sort of preventative medicine 
Because it is a message you will need at certain points in your life, even if that is not right now. And I can say that with confidence, because the New Testament, the whole Bible, is clear throughout. The life of Christian discipleship is costly. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul was able to say, say quite famous words, very stirring words in 2 Timothy. He said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And those are words that, again, are exciting words. They're words that, yes, I want to say that at the end of my life. But we need to listen to what Paul is saying there. He's saying the Christian life is a fight. He's saying it is a grueling race at times. A marathon, not a sprint. And God was able to keep him in that fight, in that race. But Paul wants us to know it will be hard, hard at times. And we need to be ready for that and prepared for times of discouragement, times of struggle. And again, just by way of an introduction to Hebrews, it's important to point out that the Hebrews didn't start out discouraged believers. Turn with me to chapter 10 of this letter. Chapter 10 and verses 32 to 34 for a glimpse of, of how the Hebrews used to be when they first became Christians. <clears throat> Read from verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. An amazing description of this resilient group of believers who are standing up to suffering at this time in their lives. But over time, we learn from the letter, they have become discouraged. And we get several signs of that discouragement throughout the letter. So there were some of them who had given up meeting together. We learn that in chapter 10, verse 25. There were some who had stopped listening to the word of God. They just had no appetite for it. That's in chapter 4. And there even appeared to have been some who had turned their back completely on the Christian life and returned to their roots in Judaism. That's chapter 10 again. So the writer of this letter is writing to discouraged and disillusioned Christians. And it's actually a message we all need to hear whether we feel weak this morning or whether we feel strong. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I believe the message of Hebrews is also for you. Again, I would love to say to people exploring the claims of Jesus that just become a Christian, follow Jesus, and all your problems are over. You will coast through to heaven. But that would be dishonest of me, and it would deny large parts of the Bible, including this letter we're looking at. See, Jesus is always honest with us. There's a cost involved in following him. It will not always be easy. But Jesus is also clear. A life lived for him is actually the only life that will truly satisfy us. 
The only life that will truly give us joy and hope in this world. The only life that will set us free from our sin and our selfishness. So actually we're free to love God and love one another. See, that's what the writer of the Hebrews believed. And he wrote this letter to act as a remedy to discouragement so that the Christians he's writing to will also grasp that in the face of struggle, it is still worth it. Because this is the life that satisfies the life that only Jesus can give. So let's look at the opening chapters of this letter now. In these first two chapters, I think the writer sort of sets out his stall for the rest of the letter. And according to the writer, again, the remedy for discouragement, for disillusionment in the Christian life is perhaps not where we'd start. In our culture, we often start with ourselves. Like, think about yourself. What are the reasons why you are discouraged right now? You're disillusioned right now. And there is value in that. But the writer of the Hebrews believes that what a group of discouraged Christians needs, first of all, to grasp is the character of the God who has laid hold of their lives, who has revealed himself to them in Jesus Christ. See, this writer believes that we need to have our eyes opened afresh to who Jesus is, what he has done for us, at the cross and the resurrection, and what he will do for us in glory. So that is where the writer begins. Not with us, but with God. So what does a discouraged Christian need to hear? Well, first of all, he or she needs to hear verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1 and realize that God has reached out to you and wants you to know him. Let me just read verses 1 and 2 again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. See, the beginning of this letter to the Hebrews is actually like the beginning of the Christian life, in that it is God who makes the first move. God has spoken, the writer says. God has reached out to us and speaks to us and he wants us to know him. God has spoken. God has made the first move. And he does that in at least two ways, according to the writer. First of all, God has reached out to us through the scriptures. And that refers to the Old Testament. Verse 1 again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. And those words kind of sort of roll, roll over us, don't they? Yeah, God has spoken. So what? You see, that is such a precious truth that the writer to the Hebrews wants us to grasp. God hasn't left us in the dark about himself. God isn't hiding from us, playing games with us. God isn't saying, well, I'm going to let them all sort out themselves. I'm off. I've done my best. The writer of the Hebrews says that God is a speaking God who reaches out to his people. And that is such a precious truth about him. And that is why we look at the Bible together. 
as a large gathering, why our midweek home groups look at the Bible together, why we try to read the Bible on our own, however falteringly, because God has spoken in his word and he's spoken things we need to hear. Not just facts about himself, not just information, but because his Holy Spirit has written his word. Words that can change us and can transform us if we receive them with faith and obedience. See, when we forget that the Bible is actually God speaking to us, it just becomes a chore. Something we maybe, we maybe think we should do, but certainly something lacking any joy. Or worse, it just becomes totally irrelevant to us. We think, well, this is hard work, the Bible. This doesn't come easily. So surely I can find something more practical to help me, less difficult to understand. But the writer of the Hebrews reminds his readers, God has spoken through his word. God wants us to know him and he invites us to hear what he has to say and to be changed by it. And I want to say that would be such an encouragement to discouraged and disillusioned believers, wouldn't it? I mean, one of the the things our heart often tells us when we feel disillusioned, discouraged, even depressed, whether for short bursts or long term, is we feel alone. We feel cut off from God, from other people, from any sense of meaning or happiness. And we just believe, well, well God doesn't care. No one cares. Particularly if we know we have failed him in so many ways, we think, well, God has given up on me. But if you're familiar with that voice in your head, if you're familiar with that feeling when you are disillusioned, discouraged, look again at what this writer is saying. You are not alone. God has reached out to you and he's reaching out to you today. He has spoken through his word and he wants you to hear what he has to say, to know him. Don't believe your heart when it tells you you're cut off. God's word says you're not. He is speaking. Will we hear him? Then in verse 2, the writer emphasizes that God didn't stop speaking through his scriptures. Supremely, he's reached out to us through the living word, Jesus. Verses 2 to three. And right from the outset, the writer wants to focus our eyes on Jesus as the supreme revelation of the character of God. Again, the writer is saying, you want to know what God is like. He has revealed himself in the scriptures and he has revealed himself supremely through Jesus. Look at Jesus, he says, and you're looking at God. See, the writer knows discouraged people, they don't need techniques ultimately they don't need mantras to say to themselves to to whisper their worries in an envelope what they need is to see the character of Jesus who he is what he has done what he will do that is what we need to strengthen us in our walk for him but very simply The writer wants these Christians reading this letter to know with confidence that Jesus 
is on your side if you're living for him. And that is a huge statement to make. And as a result, the writer is really keen that we we understand who Jesus is, that we get Jesus right. Again, it's so easy for us to, to remake Jesus in our own image, to imagine we understand him. So the writer wants to take his readers back to understanding just who Jesus is, because if we get him right, then we will have strength to carry on for him. So first of all, in chapter 1, the writer emphasizes for us that the Jesus who is on our side is fully God, with the power to save us. If you just look down at verses 2 to 3 of chapter 1, again, we can preach a dozen sermons on the descriptions of Jesus in these verses, but just to quickly get a flavour of what the writer is telling us about St. Jesus. Verse 2, he tells us, Jesus is the heir of all things. Everything in the universe belongs to Jesus, including us. Verse 2, he also made the universe. Jesus was present with the Father at the creation of all things, and the Father created all things through Jesus. And then verse 3 has got this, this wonderful description of Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. God's glory shines most clearly in the face of Jesus. If we want to know why God is glorious, why the scriptures always command us to praise him, then the writer of the Hebrews says, well, look at Jesus. Because when you look at him, you see why God deserves all our praise. Why God deserves our lives. Because he is the radiance of the glory of God. Then verse 3 tells us not only did Jesus create the universe, he also sustains it by his powerful word. Amazing encouragement even there that, that Jesus sustains us. We need to hear that when we feel weak and struggling. Verse 3, Jesus has provided purification for sins, something we'll return to in the coming weeks. And now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. At the end of that, the writer just wants us to be left in no doubt. Jesus is the Son of God. He just doesn't compare with the angels or any other spiritual being we might worship. Jesus is fully God. But the thing is, even as we begin to take on board those descriptions of Jesus and his majesty and his power, the writer says we haven't yet got the full picture. Because in chapter 2, he goes on to tell us that as well as being fully God, with the power to save us, Jesus is also fully human, with the compassion to help us. See, as we read over this letter in the coming weeks, I hope you're going to notice something. The name Jesus just keeps on coming up. And Jesus, we need to remember, that's the human name for the Son of God, given to him by his human parents, albeit through the advice of an angel. But still, that is his human name. And we need to see here that the humanity of Jesus is deeply precious to the writer of Hebrews. And it's something he wants his readers to know about and to understand as much as we can understand it. 
See, the Son of God, who created the universe and sustains it by his powerful word, is both fully God and at the same time fully human. And that is an awe-inspiring truth for Christians to grasp. Just look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. And then verse 17, when Jesus humbled himself and entered our world 2,000 years ago, Jesus was made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. We're going to explore more of what it means that Jesus is our high priest in the coming weeks. But what we can see here is an amazing truth that, again, we need to grasp this morning. Jesus knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to to suffer because he became one of us and he is one of us still. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If that verse wasn't in the Bible, you might think, is that not blasphemous? But it is here, and the writer to the Hebrews wants us to hear it. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it feels like to be tempted into sin. He knows that the life of obedience and faith is costly. And so he is able to help us face up to temptation and defeat it in dependence on his strength. Let me just ask you this morning, is this the Jesus you know? Fully God and fully man. You see, there's there's, there's a huge danger for every Christian, and, and that is that we get Jesus wrong, that we forget who Jesus really is. All too easily we emphasise one or other of the two natures of Jesus over the other one at a tremendous cost to our relationship with him. We see that in church history. We see it in our own lives. So, for example, in the year 325 AD, there was an early council of the church that met in a place called Nicaea because there were people going around saying, Jesus, he's not fully God. And from the Bible they had to prove that he was fully God. Then in the year 451 AD, another council met in a place called Chalcedon because there were people going around saying, Jesus, well, he's not fully human. And from the Bible, they had to prove that he was fully human. And actually, we're not that different today. For some of us, we emphasize Jesus as fully human. So Jesus becomes our friend, our best friend, our our mate someone who listens to our problems but who never challenges us, someone who cares about our struggles but actually can't really do much to help us in them. And then for others, we think of Jesus as fully God. So he is certainly powerful and holy, but he's up there in heaven and we're down here. And our struggles just seem insignificant to a God like that. 
See, what the writer to the Hebrews wants his readers to get right from the beginning of this letter is that neither of those extremes tells the whole story. And we need to get Jesus right if we're going to persevere for him and trust in him. Jesus, the writer of the Hebrews says, is fully human. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, and he really did suffer when he was tempted. That is a staggering truth, but it's one we need to hear. Because as a result, your struggles with sin are not alien to Jesus. He has been there ahead of you. He knows what it is like. He is not indifferent to your struggles. But he doesn't just sympathize with us. Jesus is also fully God, chapter 1 tells us. Jesus did not sin in spite of the suffering and temptation. He triumphed over sin through a life of obedience to his Father and through his death and resurrection so that sin is now a defeated enemy of Jesus. And Jesus can help his people say no to it. Say no to temptation. Do you see why it's so important we get both those natures of Jesus that are taught here? Because it's only with a fresh vision and a full vision of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, that we will be able to persevere and to find joy in knowing him, even in the face of struggle and temptation. We're not alone in that struggle. And Jesus has the power to help us. Only as a human being could Jesus fight with sin and temptation and go to the cross to take the punishment sinful humanity deserves. But only as the Son of God could he rise again after death and defeat sin, defeat the devil, defeat evil and reign in heaven for us and give us the power to live for him. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the writer of the Hebrews says, don't turn away from that Jesus. Remain in him. Persevere for him because he alone can give you the life worth living and he alone can keep you close to him. But more than that, in chapter 2, the writer says, Remain in Jesus. He will help you in the present, but he will also give you a glorious future. So the future Jesus has in store for his people is a theme that comes up again and again in this letter. The writer wants us to see that Jesus, he's actually not content just to lavish his grace and mercy on us here and now. No, one day he will free us from sin and temptation. He will free us from struggle and bring us into a glorious new creation. Free from death and evil where we will enjoy life as it was always meant to be lived with the God who made us. And we're going to return to that glorious future next week when we look at chapters 3 and 4. But for now, as we near the end, in verses 10 to 13 of chapter 2, the writer reminds us that Actually, we can experience a measure of that glorious future here and now. 
Okay, we need to be clear. We, we don't live in the new creation yet. We're not free from death and evil yet. But from the moment we place our trust in Jesus, we become children of God. Jesus brings us into the family of God and we become Jesus' brothers and sisters. And look at verse 10 of chapter 2 on this. It reminds us of the purpose for which Jesus humbled himself and entered our world to bring many sons to glory, to adopt ordinary men and women who put their trust in him and to bring them into the family of God. And then verse 11 tells us what an awesome privilege that is. Let me read verse 11 for us again. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you see what the writer is telling us here? If you've placed your trust in Jesus, however falteringly, however weak you may feel or discouraged you may feel, and verse 11 tells us, you have been made holy. You have been set apart for God and you are of the same family as Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, the perfectly obedient Son of Man, is not ashamed to call you his brother, to call you his sister. You are part of the same family. That is not on the basis of your own performance. It is on the basis of what he has done for you. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And again, think about the original readers of this letter. What an amazing word of encouragement that would have been. In their weakness, their, their disillusionment, I'm sure there would have been times when, when they felt ashamed to call themselves Christians, when they knew they'd just blown it again. And they were sure that Jesus must feel the same way about them. But look at the message the writer of the Hebrews has for them. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. He has made atonement for your sin through his death. Now he is bringing you into glory. And as you wait for that glorious new creation, Jesus, your brother, has the power to help you and the compassion to help you. And that is the message these opening chapters of Hebrews has for for every single one of us here this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, you are a child of God. And Jesus is not ashamed of you. You may feel weak and proud and sinful and foolish. You may keep making the same mistakes. You may feel loveless and cold about him. But look at verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, to call them sisters. That's the message for discouraged Christians. Look at Jesus. He is fully God. He is fully man. And he is not ashamed of you. There are challenges that come with following Jesus. We will turn to some more of those challenges next week. But but we need to hear this message. We might expect the opening chapters of a letter like this to say, sort it out. Sort it out, people. You're messing up. Pull your socks up. Try harder. Or else. But instead, we get this. Look at Jesus. Powerful. Compassionate. He is not ashamed of you. So do not be ashamed of him. Let's pray.